Welcome to the Russian Rulers Podcast, Episode 21, Ivan IV. Oh my God, what have I done? Last week, we recounted the reign of terror Ivan unleashed in the name of the Upper Chinina, which greatly weakened the country, making them ripe for invasion. The Lithuanian-Polish menace on the western borders was there, but the main threat came not from them, but from the Crimean Tartars. It was early September 1570 when panic began to spread throughout Moscow because of a rumored army of Tartars heading their way. Ivan gathered his Oprichniki army and headed out from Alexandrova Sloboda to meet the threat because the presumed number of the soldiers in the totality of the Tartar army was a mere 6,000 according to scouts. Ivan felt secure in the knowledge that the threat was minor, so he headed back to his hunting lodge and let the Zemsachina army battle the invaders. What the Tsar didn't know was the 6,000 Tartars were just probing the Russian defenses in advance of a massive attack force of 120,000, led by Khan Devlet Gire. On April 5, 1571, the Khan began his march on Moscow. On the way, the army came upon a number of boyars who were fleeing the terror of the Uprichnina, and they told the Khan that Moscow was ripe for the taking, as it was in the grips of a famine and that the Tsar's army was small, too small to provide any real opposition. Not fully trusting the boyars, the Khan was wary, until one Kudrya Tishnikov promised that if the Tartar army failed to reach Moscow, they would impale him. On they went. Word came to Ivan, who headed out of the town of Serpikov towards Moscow. When he arrived in late May, he was shocked to see what was in front of him. The entirety of the Tartar army was only 20 miles away. He was petrified. He and his Oprichniki army were brave when presented with defenseless civilians, but they showed their true cowardice when presented with an armed adversary. Ivan quickly fled the scene, returning to Alexandrova Sloboda, where he spent a short time gathering his treasury, and he headed off to Novgorod in the north, where he felt safe. While the Russian armies in Moscow fought bravely, the Tartar army was too big, and their goal was impossible to defend against. They did not want to conquer and occupy the city. No, they wanted to do two things, humiliate Ivan and destroy Moscow. Ivan was humiliated for sure, showing his cowardice by fleeing. Now came the destruction of the capital of Russia. The Tartars ravaged the city, burning it to the ground in just three days. Over 60,000 people, half the inhabitants, perished. Seeing that his mission was complete, Khan Garay, on May 26, 1571, ordered a general withdrawal, having plundered the city and taking over 100,000 prisoners to sell as slaves. Ivan got word of the Tartar retreat and set out to return. The city was filled with decomposing bodies, made worse because of the heat of the oncoming summer. No one wanted to go into the city for the fear of the pestilence. Ivan ordered all the bodies thrown into the Muscovy River. So great was the number of dead that the river was said to have changed course. People began to flee again. The Tsar would have none of that. He forced people to return and offered all masons, carpenters, and craftsmen freedom from taxes on all monies earned as long as it took to rebuild Moscow. Within four years, a new city emerged from the ashes now with a Kremlin made of stone. Ivan was sure who was to blame for the disaster. It could not be the Tsar, as he was the messenger from God. 
No, it was obvious who to blame. The Oprechniki. Another bloodbath ensued, with the former oppressors becoming the victims. Blood flowed until few Oprechniki members remained. Although one curious survivor was one of the worst of the whole lot, one Malyutish Skutrov. His daughter Maria would eventually marry a future Tsar, one Boris Gudunov. But, for all intents and purposes, though, the Oprechnina was over. Now Ivan set his sights on the Crimean Tartars. The Khan sent emissaries to the Tsar, demanding the return of both Astrahan and Kazan. Ivan stalled with his response as he needed to sign peace agreements with Sweden, Lithuania, and Poland. Khan Devit Gurey threatened to return and make the Russians a vassal state as his forefathers had in the day of the Golden Horde. Ivan knew the threat was real, so he gathered all the remaining boyars and had them put together an army to protect Russia. And that he did with vigor. When Ivan was ready, he sent the Khan the following message, as recorded by Englishman Jerome Horsey. Quote, Tell the miscreant and unbeliever, thy master, it is not he. It is for my sins and the sins of my people against my God and Christ. He is that has given him, a limb of Satan, the power and opportunity to be the instrument of my rebuke, by whose pleasure and grace I no doubt, not of to revenge, but to make him my vassal, or long be. Basically, Ivan told the Khan that he was suffering for his sins, but that the Crimean's world would soon become the Tsar's vassals. Ivan could not fathom that the Tartars could be responsible for the damage done to Russia. Only God could do this, and only through piety would God allow for revenge. Ivan was concerned and fearful. Now 42, he began to look back at his life with remorse. Then news came to him that the Russian army had engaged the totality of the Crimean Tartar army at the town of Molody. He was told that on August 2nd, the army of the Crimea was totally destroyed. The Novgorod Chronicle reports that 100,000 Tartars lay dead. News spread throughout Russia and Europe as well, as there were still doubts that the Russians had thrown off the yoke of the Mongols and the Tartars. Ivan was free of the Tartar menace, for the most sake, as were the Russians. The Tartars would make one last attempt to take Moscow, but it would be rebuked, as we shall see in next week's episode. The people of Russia had dodged a bullet aimed directly at their heart. Had things not gone their way there that fateful summer day, the history of Russia would have been drastically different, and likely would have caused the country to become a Muslim state. For the next three years, Russia and Ivan were in a relatively peaceful state. Sigismund, king of Lithuania and Poland, had died, and Ivan went so far as to offer himself to become the king of Poland and Lithuania, but that was summarily declined. In the fall of 1575, a truly bizarre historical event occurred, when without notice, Ivan abandoned the crown and handled the title of Tsar to the former Tartar Khan, once known as Sayan Bulet, who had converted to Orthodoxy, taking the name Simeon. Ivan then changed his name to Prince Ivan Moskovsky, and acted as though he was subservient to Simeon, he referred to often as Tsar. Few historians have offered an explanation for this seemingly erratic act that created no benefits for anyone. Within a year, bored by lazily hanging around with his eldest son Ivan at Alexandrova Sloboda, the rightful Tsar returned to Moscow and reappointed himself Grand Prince of all Russia, its Tsar. 
Now, Ivan settled out, and he went out to settle some scores with Livonia. His armies went out and swiftly defeated the armies of King Magnus in short order, but these victories were short-lived and hollow, as a new king of Poland and Lithuania emerged, a brilliant military man, Stephen Bathory. In the coming years, Bathory, along with his new ally, Sweden, was to batter Ivan's forces and retake much of the land the Russians had gained in the past. By 1580, Russia was exhausted, both emotionally and financially. Bathory penetrated deep into Russia, making it all the way to Peskov. There, Prince Ivan Shuisky led a spirited defense of the Whitestone Fortress city, which halted Bathory's advance. Ivan had nothing to do with the defense of Peskov, as he was acting with his typical cowardice, hiding far away in his hunting lodge. There, in November 1581, Ivan received a petition from a small number of nobles asking for the following to help defend the homeland. Quote, for three years our enemies have been invading the fatherland, which it is our bounden duty to defend. We are ready to shed our blood, lay down our lives, and sacrifice our property for the sake of the fatherland. Therefore, our lord and master, send your eldest son to war. Ivan totally misunderstood the petition, as he felt that his son was trying to wrestle control of the army and take power away from his father. But all the petitioners really wanted was the Tsarevich to lead them to victory. Ivan was in a rage as he felt that his heir was acting treasonously. Ivan brooded. He was walking throughout his palace, palace where he came upon the pregnant wife of his son, one Yelena Saramateva. He was furious with her as he felt that she was dressed immodestly, and he struck her, causing her to fall and miscarry. Tsarevich Ivan, already angry with his father for policies he was carrying out with the Livonian War, confronted his father. Boris Gudunov tried to intervene as he could tell Tsar Ivan was infuriated. Ivan struck Gudunov first with the point of his staff, knocking him to the ground. Then, completely insane with anger, he struck his son, his heir, in the head with the heavy end of his staff, delivering a fatal blow which would take his young son's life three days later, on November 19, 1581. The heir to the throne of Russia was 27 years old. This is a moment that I really remember from my Russian history class in 1977 at Queens College in New York City as my professor, Dr. Paul Average, acted out the murder of young Ivan by his father in such a dramatic fashion that I remember it as though it was yesterday, despite it occurring some 33 years ago. Thank you, Professor Average, as this was the moment that made me passionate about Russian history. Now, back to the story. Ivan wailed, Oh my God, what have I done? I've killed my son. The Tsar was inconsolable, his sleep oftentimes disrupted by violent nightmares, knocking him out of bed. He became a shadow of the man he once was. Ivan knew now that his time was up and his mortality became the focus of his life. He ordered all people he had murdered to be recorded and prayers to be said for all with the estates he stole given back to 200 monasteries throughout Russia. The compilation of the lists occupied the last months of Ivan's life, but there was still Stephen Bathory out there, wreaking havoc within Russia's borders. On January 15, 19, or 1582, 
a 10-year peace treaty was signed, which forced Russia to give up all its claims in Livonia, as well as the city of Dorpat. The wars with Sweden were not over, though, as they captured Narva, which forced Ivan to sign a truce with them as well. The Tsar was no longer in full control of his faculties, as he began to fantasize about making an alliance with England to regain his lost territory, and even went so far as to propose marriage to Queen Elizabeth I. At this time, an extraordinary event was unfolding elsewhere, led by a wealthy merchant family, the Stroganovs. Yes, that's Stroganov, whose name lends itself to my daughter's favorite meal made of beef, headed to Siberia. They, with a small mercenary army of 1,500, defeated Siberian Tartar forces and opened the vast lands and riches to Russia. This was an enormous gain for Russia for centuries to come. Ivan saw the end coming, and with the knowledge that his feeble-minded son Fyodor was now the sole heir, he appointed a council to advise the future Tsar, led by one Boris Gudunov. The morning of March 17, 1584 came, with Ivan feeling surprisingly good. He readied himself for a journey to a meeting with a Lithuanian embassy in Moscow, but he was suspiciously dissuaded from leaving his lodge. The following day, while setting up chess pieces to play a game with either Boris Gudunov or Bogdan Belsky, he fell backwards dead, apparently of a stroke. There is a rumor that the stroke did not really kill him, but that he was strangled to death. Whatever the reality, Ivan Vasilievich, Ivan Grozny, Ivan the Terrible, was dead. A giant of a man who cast a huge shadow over a giant nation was no longer. With his death, he leaves his son Fyodor on the throne of a nation, just decades away from the brink of disaster. Next week, we follow the reign of Fyodor I, the end of the Rurik Line, the ascension of Boris Gudunov as Tsar of all Russia, and the beginning of the Time of Troubles. Now, for this week in Russian history, for the week of September 19th through the 25th. In 1739, Grigory Alexandrovich Potemkin, famous Russian statesman, is born. In 1784, Russia established a colony at Kodiak, Alaska. In 1789, the Battle of Rymnik establishes Alexander Suvorov as a preeminent Russian military commander after his Allied army defeats superior Ottoman Empire forces. In 1854, we have the Battle of Alma. British and French troops defeat Russians in the Crimea. In 1944, we have the armistice between Finland and the Soviet Union, which ended the war of the continued ended the was the end of the Continuation War. Now, in 1959, we have a really bizarre event. Nikita Khrushchev was actually barred from visiting Disneyland. In 1993, Russian President Boris Yeltsin suspends Parliament and scraps the then-functioning Constitution, thus triggering the Russian constitutional crisis of 1993. And in the year 2000, we have Hermann Titov, Russian cosmonaut, the second man to go into outer, into outer space after Yuri Gagarin, he passes away. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Don't forget to visit the iTunes App Store and download the Russian Rulers app. And please, visit the websites at russianrulers.podhoster.com. Become a Facebook friend at Russian Rulers History Podcast. Ask a question, make a suggestion, and please leave a comment. And as always, das vidanya i spasiba bolshoya.